This podcast was recorded on November 17th, 2020. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and is subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Welcome, everybody, to The Sherman Show. I'm Jeff Sherman here with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And we're sitting here on November 17th, and we have a very special guest. We have Jim Grant. You know him as a financial journalist, a historian. He's the founder and ed- editor of the eponymous Grant's Interest Rate Observer. He's a big fan of, uh, we're a big fan of his, I should say, uh, written many publications, many books. Uh, his latest book, though, uh, I'm, I'm going to butcher it, though. Is it Bagahot, The Life and Times of the Greatest Victorian? Is that how you say that name? Uh, uh, Badgett. Badgett. Ba- Badgett. Okay. Yeah, yeah Badgett. So um, it's a, it's something that people should check out out there. Um, you've, you've heard him on our podcast previously. Um, he said that he didn't really prepare for this today. He only got through Aardvark in the encyclopedia. He was trying to get all the way to Zimbabwe, but uh, some of his studies took him a, a rise. So, Jim, welcome to the show today. Well, thank you. It's nice to be here, Sam and David. Yeah. So, so here we are. Um, we're sitting here in, in the two weeks post the election. Uh, looks like we may have a victor at some point in the near future. As I was joking with some of our EM folks today, it's taken us two weeks to figure out who the president is. Well, at least we're not Peru, who's already recycled through their third president <laughs> within a week, right? So, uh, we got a lot of things that are top of mind. So, What's the one thing that you're really thinking about in the market today to kick us off? What is one thing that people should be thinking about today? The thing that uh, that uh, preoccupies me, and, I, and this is not no new preoccupation, is the is the world is in love with securities that uh, warrant uh, that they will pay you just about nothing. There's a there is a phenomenon unique in financial history of negative. Uh, nominal yielding fixed income securities, notes and bonds that uh, pay you less than nothing. And uh, not so long ago, there were 17 trillion of such things in existence. And I just finished reading uh, uh, in the Wall Street Journal why we should all become a little friendlier towards the 10-year U.S. Treasury 10-year note that yields uh, uh, 90 basis points, nine-tenths of 1%, because... Uh, it is certainly better than nothing, the argument goes. And besides that, uh, you never know. That's another part of the argument. And furthermore, uh, I've forgotten the furthermore. But I, 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 as you can tell, Jeffrey, and say, I wasn't, I wasn't persuaded by this. Um, the world's central banks um, are pledging to uh, depreciate or debase the currencies in which these ultra-low yielding securities are nom- denominated, and still we collectively can't seem to get enough of them. And I, I do understand uh, many of the arguments for the bullish arguments for bonds at these levels, but um, you know I, I I read them, I, I absorb the line of logic, and then I say what and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, I, I guess I should confess here 
that uh, I have been incredulous for oh, about uh, 10, 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> so this is not pinpoint timing, fellows. This is this is uh, um, uh, to be charitable. It is uh, uh, it is an historically based observation that. Uh, may or may not be germane for today's trading. But still, I think it's worthy of at least considering. That, right. Uh, so you, you talked about debasement. And, you know, a lot of the arguments that I hear the pushback on the debasement of at least the U.S. dollar is that it's fiat currencies globally and everybody's in the race to the bottom of the race to devalue. But another way of thinking about debasement, even for one who doesn't traffic internationally, is to think about inflation, right? And the purchasing power. And so you were talking about bullish arguments, uh, perhaps, um, and, and understanding being sympathetic to them for the 10 year at 90 basis points, but that still is likely a rate below the inflation rate, right? And so yes. the basement's also purchasing power, right? So uh, how, how do you reconcile those thoughts too? I know we're one of the higher yielding currencies out there today, given the 90 basis points relative to some of the other catastrophic yields out there. But how, how do you think about that from a purchasing power perspective? Well, the purchasing power, of course, is diminishing. And uh, one is receiving a negative real interest rate, which um, not so long ago was considered a, a very um, undesirable state of affairs. You know, I, th I think, uh, uh, you know, what one, a bond bear speaks very humbly and treads very carefully in these matters. I mean, they, uh, uh, people who have been bullish for 10, 15, 20 years, I'm thinking now principally of Van Hoisington, um, have seen something that I didn't see. But I, what I nonetheless do see is a world in love uh, with something that is not necessarily uh, re requiting that affection. I, I'm reminded of uh, Oprah or other such shows and women who love too much, creditors who love too much. <laughs> you know, uh, this, uh, this, you know, way back when, I say in the late 1960s, there was a, a Federal Reserve president, his, his, his bank was Atlanta, and I'll think of his name after we get off the air. But this fellow uh, uh, issued a, I guess he gave a speech, and in it, he absolutely laid into the Federal Reserve Board uh, for the, uh, the treachery of setting out virtually with its actions, setting out uh, to devalue the currency in which so many trusting savers had uh, committed their wealth. And um, so that was then. So fast forward uh, a little more than a half century. And what we have today is something almost as striking, which is uh, a set of central bankers the world over who are pledging promising to uh, cheapen the purchasing power of their currencies, even as the bond buyers swarm to bid at lower and lower rates, not stopping at zero. So, you know, one, one thought about this apropos of um, women who love too much, and I dare say there are men who love too much as well. Uh, they are on the evening as opposed to daytime TV. Just that's, that's the same thing. Really. But uh, one explanation might be the sheer muscle memory of a a bull market in bonds that next year at about this time marks its 40th, 40, 40th anniversary. So the muscle memory in this is just powerful. I mean, I, um, you have to be a lot older than I am. I'm actually 100 and 
14. But you have to be a lot older than I am to have had a career in Wall Street when interest rates were not principally going down. To be sure, there have been um, changes in, in the squiggles, the line, but the, the predominant tendency since the fall of 1981 has been lower. And that's uh, like two successful Wall Street, uh, I guess three successful Wall Street careers. If you actually work 50 years on Wall Street, you are either confessing uh, to a severe case of workaholism or you are admitting to not quite getting uh, the memo because um, a successful Wall Street career is like uh, four or five uh, big bonus cycles, right? So you, you have to have a couple of or three Wall Street careers under your belt not to have worked in an environment of falling rates. So if, yeah. you, read, if you read these stories about uh, the bond market, there's one in the FT yesterday that said, uh, you know, the good thing about Italian debt yielding about nothing as a premium to what they call super safe balloons. The, the really great thing about this is that if business activity on the continent uh, dwindles further, the ECB is going to start buying more. That's good, right? And on the other hand, if there is a vaccine and a recovery, that's good too, because uh, more, you know, more income to cover fixed charges uh, in the national Italian sovereign. So you really can't lose at no, at, at no interest rates. It's, I, I am astounded by this. Yeah, it reminds me of those. Uh, there was a lot of uh, comics, and we now call them memes, I think, that were circulating in the the 07 era talking about well the good news is bad the bad i'm sorry the bad news is good the good news is good the mediocre news is good everything's just great and it it's a very similar element in the, in the bond market you described there but it, you know you you do a lot of research and you you look through history to to provide some guide uh, to thinking about the markets but when you think about the relationship at least in this country between the federal reserve and the fiscal authorities, Congress. Um, have you seen such coordination? I mean, usually around wartime, I think a lot of people pull out from World War II, there was some coordination there when the Fed did some yield curve uh, control. But have you seen such coordination that Mr. Powell has embarked on in 2020 in the annals of history? Well, yes, but you mentioned the uh, wartime expedient. Uh, that comes uh, first to mind. You know, the Fed was uh, opened its doors for business in 1914, and within three years, the United States was at war, and the entire business model of the Fed was turned upside down, and the Fed began doing things that the founders had never contemplated. You know, it began to do uh, lent against the collateral of treasuries and the banking system. It uh, monetized debt left, you know, hand over fist. It uh, you know, it, it, it did everything that uh, Carter Glass, the progenitor of the Fed, promised it would never do. I mean, it was quite extraordinary. So then came the, then came, uh, the armistice and uh, armistice and uh, bout of what Warren G. Harding called normalcy. And fast forward to um, the early 30s. But by then, um, you saw something that we never would have imagined today, which was the Treasury Secretary from the beginning of the Fed to about 1935, was a uh, uh, a member of the uh, of the what today is called the FOMC. The Treasury Secretary was that was that was part of the original business plan. That I think was scrubbed with the uh, Banking Act of 1935. So now we are at World War II, and um, uh, what happened then was the uh, the Treasury 
and the Fed together pegged, as they use the expression, the bond market, at I think three points of the yield curve, there was a bill rate of three eighths of one percent. There was an intermediate note of like maybe five eighths of one percent or something, and then there was the uh, uh, long bond. I forgot what that was. Uh, not very much. Two, maybe two and a quarter, two and a half. And that lasted from 1942, I think, 1951. And 1951 was the the famous accord by which the Fed declared its independence and was allowed to declare its independence from. All right. So that uh, see 1950. 51 to the present day, uh, if, um, let's see, that's a long time, right? It's a 70, 60, 70 years. So from that time to this, there has been at least uh, the pretense of the separation of powers. And that, you know, the, sometimes the, the Fed seemed to be doing the, the Treasury's heavy lifting, but uh, it was done at least with the, the cover of uh, rhetorical protestations. There was nothing of the kind going on. So what is new today, what is new, and if we were capable of being shocked, it would be shocking, is that Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Fed, came out and said something about working like hand in glove with the Treasury, side by side, I guess was his phrase, uh, to affect the proper stimulus. Ah, so, I mean, every gold bull left, I mean, there must be two or three, um, uh, just cocked up his or her ears, we could not believe it because they were confessing uh, to embarking on yet another radical path in, uh, in monetary affairs, which is the more or less overt monetization of, of, uh, of debt by the Fed. I mean, every time the Fed buys an earning asset, that's monetization. Every time a commercial gets something, that's really monetization. So this term is not so mysterious as it seems. But what it, is, yeah, sorry. No, no, no. I, I was going to pick up on that, too, because there's now been the speculation or at least more discussion around the central bank digital currency, which, you know, uh, I, I believe that Chairman Powell and, and some of the folks inside the federal governorships are talking about uh, using the crisis, uh, the most recent pandemic, as an example of why they need this. The transmission mechanism to the banking system was too slow to react. Yeah. And so how do you think about this whole idea? It's something we've been discussing pretty heavily at DoubleLine. Uh, how are you thinking about this idea of digital currencies being issued via the central bank? I think it is... Uh... One of the worst ideas I've heard since the last bad idea coming out of the Fed. <laughs> and which one was that? <laughs> what was the last bad idea? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Um, QE part N. But <laughs> the, the um, uh, so many objections to this, not the least of which. In fact, the foremost objection to this in my book is the is the nose on, of the camel under the tent of liberty. I mean, why wouldn't the government uh, use digital currency to abolish currency? Why wouldn't it come to know how we are spending our money and where we have stashed those Krugerrands in expectation of a possible acrimonious divorce? I'm not speaking for myself, gentlemen. <laughs> I have 47 years and counting. Yeah. Um, remember, remember speaking, of, speaking of this, as actually I was only, but... Uh, in the day, there used to be a, 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 a bearer muni bond market, and they were called divorce bonds. <laughs> You'd put these bearer bonds in a safe place and, uh, and hold them against the day. 
if you wouldn't really root on. <laughs> I, I think I think I think the the political ramifications of this are are, are te- to me fright frightening. And, this gives uh, unlimited spending authority practically to uh, the powers that be, right? It does. It gives. Uh, it would give unlimited snooping power, and I, you know, Facebook knows everything. Uh, what's your name? Who's listening in? Yeah. What is her name? Uh, the uh, the digital presence. Siri. Siri. Yes. Uh, I never liked it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but, but what you're pointing out there is the lack of anonymity with the currency, right? Absolutely. Because, yeah. One of the nice things about currency currency is that uh, it's untraceable. I, I mean, I do have um, easy pass on the on the car. I like to think that I'm rather measured in in uh, these judgments, and I certainly don't like to think I'm a I'm uh, over the the top in conspiracyism. But this, to me, is an invitation to the governmental overreach. I mean, overreach is actually is the is the Fed's new business plan. Uh, you're going back 25, 30 years. Uh, we had a headline over Grant's articles called "Emission Creeps," and we documented uh, the expansion of the Fed's uh, MO from its founding to about I think mid 90s when we published this headline in the, in the accompanying article. But since then, it's become I mean, it's it's uh, it's uh, an overdrive, right? No, just, yes. Sorry. Yeah, no, no. So on, on the controversial side, too, um, you know, there's a, a new Fed governor nominee that's uh, being passed around now. It's a it's a name that seems to spark a little bit of controversy, and that's Judy Shelton. Uh, how How is your opinion of Ms. Shelton and her um, kind of some of her policies? And is it appropriate uh, for her to be someone considered for a Fed governorship? Well, it is more than appropriate, in my opinion. It is a it is highly desirable, and I would go so far as to say it's 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 urgent that she be waved by. I think the Senate is voting probably as we speak. Uh, Judy Shelton here here to me is is the uh, is her principal qualification for this job. She wrote a book that came out late in the 1980s. It was called something like the uh, uh, the uh, coming Soviet uh, crash. That wasn't the exact title, but you can check it under. On Google. Sounds right. Yes. What what she what she exhibits is imagination. Now she's a she's a scholar of monetary affairs as well. Of course, she's an economist with a PhD, which normally for me is not a qualification, a desirable qualification for the Federal Reserve Board. We at Grants call this ruling system the PhD standard, and we don't mean it uh, in a complimentary fashion. But uh, Judy Shelton has an independence of mind, a different worldview, and a capacity to think outside. This uh, this box of these uh, this is a, a clerisy. It's a con- it's a it's a congregation of of uh, of, uh, of orthodox religious believers. This this collection of macroeconomists and the Fed who run things for us. I mean, they they are closed-minded to an absurd degree. They 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 insist that you must have a model, just beat a model, and they 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 cling to their a dynamic stochastic equilibrium models which somehow neglect money and credit and financial institutions and uh, unintended consequences and all the rest of the things that make the world go around. These people, I mean, Trump, now that you ask, uh, Jeffrey, um, Trump is fond of saying that the, the press is the, is the enemy of the people. Well, I don't contend that the Fed is the enemy of the people, but the Fed is the enemy of that financial stability, the stability that the Fed contends it promotes with its hair-brained, yeah, yeah, hair-brained policies. It is just, 
Now that you asked the question about Judy, well, I, you, you should probably regret having asked it, but I'm going to summarize and say Judy ought to be on that board. The board needs her. She doesn't need the board. The board needs her. And and you and what you're what you're describing here is free think. It's it's a difference. It's not just being wedded to, as you call it, the the, the stochastic dynamic equilibrium model, and just more group think. It's different leaders, and that was some of the platitudes that were afforded Mr. Powell when he was nominated, right? Oh he yeah, said, yeah. Right. yeah. I mean, the Fed has. I guess everybody has this uh, inclusion and diversity office, and the Fed is quite quite proud of its inclusion and diversity office. Hey, how about a little intellectual inclusion? How about a little analytical diversity? These people, these people are terrified of Judy Shelton, who's quite petite and utterly unthreatening, even in person. But they they betray themselves a little bit by their 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 frenetic opposition to this. I mean, this, the senators who have spoken against her speak in the most immoderate, insulting ways about this woman's capacities and her resume. I mean, it, it, they, they reveal more than they intend to reveal by the sheer shrillness and the acrimony of their opposition. Yeah, and it, it seems to be something uh, commonplace nowadays in, in you know the, the political arena. But I wanted to stick with this theme of groupthink and extend it to uh, the appointment of the incoming Treasury Secretary that, or would potentially be the in, incoming uh, new Treasury uh, Secretary. And just play around what you were talking about earlier with the separation of powers from yesteryear versus the hand in glove policy today with uh, Jerome Powell. And some of the names that have been thrown in as candidates are, are Janet Yellen and uh, Ms. Brainerd. Uh, what are your thoughts around those two possibilities? Perfect, perfect union of, uh, of uh, perfect uh, heretical uh, union of uh, monetary and, uh, and fiscal powers. I think it's it's pointing towards the MOF and the BOJ, that is the Bank of Japan, the Ministry of Finance in Japan. Uh, it speaks to the uh, unholy alignment of uh, the Fed's interests and those of the in our cartelized commercial banking system. I mean, I th think the way to think about the direction we're heading is to is to just step back and to review the founding principles of our finances that begin with Alexander Hamilton and uh, Albert Gallatin, and, and, and um, uh, Gallatin's first name just uh, eludes me. Um, darn. Uh, but anyway, to continue through uh, the, the founders of the Fed and, and some of the early critics of the Fed, I mean, the, the, the founding principles of American finance can be summarized more along these lines, that commercial banks are separate and distinct from any central banking organization except for the irregular, necessitous provision of liquidity, not solvency, time to stress. That's one founding principle. The second founding principle is that uh, the owners of a financial institution are themselves responsible for the solvency of that institution. In, in times of stress, insolvency, or impairment, they get a capital call, not the taxpayers, they get a capital call. That's the second. The third might be that the, uh, the Treasury uh, is not necessarily the family's, uh, uh, family's uh, financial affairs, as the modern monetary people remind us that you know, the treasury is not your family's finances. But still, there was such a thing called the public credit. And, uh, and Hamilton and Gallatin and others and, um, uh, insisted that uh, 
the public credit uh, be treated as something precious and rather delicate. This was a time when, of course, the dollar was not infinitely replicable on a digital printing press, was, was a finite thing that we dug out of the ground, either gold or silver. Those founding principles have been utterly turned on their heads over the past uh, generation and a half, two generations. And you know, I, it, it, we, we, we would have a 17 and a half podcast to hash out whether the net change is, is constructive and whether uh, financial progress is a thing or whether financial retrogression better characterizes our recent history. Uh, but I think it's helpful that at least when we contemplate a Fed and a Treasury staffed by some of the same people to at least be aware of the initial objections to this. People, you know, the people who founded the country had a very vivid recollection of the disaster of our original currency, and they wanted to know more of it. So, yeah, it reminds me of um, when you have a bad industry and uh, what the cure for replacing management is to do it with someone else that was running another poorly ran company within that industry. And <laughs> it just kind of feeds upon itself. And, you know, it, it's status quo, right? Because you don't want to upset exactly. the apple part, yeah, right? Status quo. And, and, and the status quo to which we are getting accustomed is a most extraordinary one, right? It took, uh, what, from 19, uh, from 1789 to, uh, was it 19... Uh, 80, uh, early Reagan years, 1981, 80, I guess 1982, to get the first trillion of, of public debt. Uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, long time. And Once they say the first trillion is the hardest, right? They did get the hang of it because the subsequent trillion took around three or four or five years of memory service, which it sometimes does. And that was two trillion caught in the mid to somewhat late-ish 80s. And today we're up to, what is it now, 26, 27? So the, the so we are contemplating, indeed, anticipating uh, the spiritual union, at least, of Treasury and Fed through identical personnel, revolving door personnel, at a time of symbolic rise in the public debt, and simultaneously at a time to what must be a record complacency with respect to debt, witness the popularity of modern monetary theory. And, uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting setup. You know, um, uh, Monica Erickson, uh, a most terrific uh, officer of Double Line Capital, spoke at the Grants Conference on October 20th. This is not a plug because the conference is over. Fellas. I'm not really plugging the conference. But um, uh, Monica Erickson said that, uh, uh, that uh, the setup in investment-grade corporate debt were some of the lowest yields on record and some of the longest duration on record. He says not much of a setup. So the, 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 the not much of a setup uh, characterization would certainly apply to uh, sovereign debt as well. So uh, the lowest rates, and I think we could uh, see, let's see this, the year is what? Uh, see, the millennium is a 2000. So 4,000 years is a book called The History of Interest Rates from 2000 BC to the Present, uh, Sidney Homer's book, Dick Sillow. So we have the lowest interest rates in 4,020 years, if my arithmetic is correct. And the only observation of substantial volumes of negative nominal yields in 4,020 years. And we are maximum bullish on bonds collectively. Now that, gentlemen, is a paradox. Yeah, no, Ed, most definitely. And, you know, you mentioned the uh, amount of public debt outstanding and then We've weaved in here the corporate debt market, which is on pace. Um, well, I think it's already exceeded its record issuance. It's on pace for about $2 trillion of gross issuance. And granted, some of that's a little bit of pay down. That's just the investment grade market. Right. We can get into high yield and loans. And then 
private markets. And I mean, it's it's definitely 2020 is characterized as the year of debt. But let's also come back to the Fed policy on that, because how are you what are you thinking about when it comes to this new policy of somehow targeting some average inflation rate? And I know uh, Clarita was out this week or, or it may have been last week or it was yesterday, Monday. It doesn't matter. It's all they, they say the same thing yeah. all the time. Like, yeah. go, go ahead. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So whatever day of the week it is, I guess, is what you were saying there. Um, but, you know, uh, the idea that they're willing to embrace some level of inflation and that's above their stated target. And I know you and I will always say, oh, well, they got to get to the target first, right? That, that's been the big joke. Uh, but is there is there this idea that they're really trying to stoke inflation? Are they stoke, trying to stoke inflation? And it's just that there's the inability to do so because of the debt burden. We know the debt you know, creates a, a lower growth environment, creates an overhang. So does it even matter at this point um, if they're trying to target that? Or is it just really just an excuse to say, look, we're giving you as much forward guidance as we can. We're going to keep rates low. They're going to be pinned down as long as we can. Stay bullish bonds. Don't worry about the bonds blowing up in your portfolio. We'll get through this eventually. H how do you think about this change in policy? And does it even have any implications? It reinforces the... Uh, the visible truth that the people at the Fed are disconnected from the world in which the rest of us live. They seem not to understand that they don't understand. They are idiot savants. They know nothing about the past. Their entire focus is on their models and the recent present. If you look at the, I'm getting around to answering this question. I'll be finished in about 20, 25 minutes. If you look at the uh, scholarly citations in the back of any of the Fed position papers that you read, the oldest citation goes back to as far back as like 2010. That is their historical framework in what they're doing. They have, so uh, uh, they believe that they control events. No, events will presently control them because events Events are a little bit like the coronavirus, right? They are the unpredictable. They are, they are uh, sometimes quite benign, uh, but they sometimes are persistently malevolent. I mean, are these people any smarter than the ones we had running the things in the 70s? No, they are not any smarter. They are luckier to have a later birth date. Not only can they target inflation, they don't understand the consequences, the implications of their failure to understand what causes inflation. They are incorrigibly ignorant. And they are clear and present danger to your wealth who's ever listening to this. Well, that was uplifting. Um, okay, so that's what I, I expected to hear well, something you, like that. Yeah, too, but... ask the question, Jeffrey. You have to expect <laughs> Right. I, I know that I know your hotbed. Let, let me say. OK, so I, I talked with somebody who was formerly the Bank for International Settlements yesterday. He told this charming story. There was a cocktail party at the BIS and uh, on hand was one of the fellows who writes the annual report of the Bank for International Settlements. This, of course, is the central bankers own central bank or their own Swiss bank. And they have this these uh, fabulous parties with the very best wine. And um, present was this guy who was one of the authors of the annual report and a translator who would translate his English into the German version of the BIS annual report, okay? And she says to him, you know, the conclusion, the concluding section of the BIS annual report 
is the most difficult translation job I've ever had in my life. And the guy says, well, you don't have to understand we have to be a little bit elliptical because we're writing for the, uh, really our stockholders, these central banks were our stockholders. She said, that as may be, she said, that as may be. But I've translated 17 pages and what I see is a lot of nothing. <laughs> so that that is the language of central banking. And you ask me, a civilian, to comment on these guys, that's what you got. Yeah, Plain fair, fair enough. That's why we call it Fed speak, right? And we can call it uh, BOE speak. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. And it, yeah. But it said something about, um, I, just to transition there, uh, I read something about uh, analyst reports, and they were talking about the complexity of language. And so what they were talking about was that, you know, the more the more sophisticated the language used, the less information is typically in there. And then uh, I was pairing that with another uh, reading that I was doing that was talking about uh, looking at doing surveys of people and getting them to agree or disagree with the subject. And that as you increase the complexity of the language, people were more willing to agree because yeah. they want to admit that yeah, they don't understand it, right? Complexity is obfuscation. Uh, George Orwell, in one of his essays, talked about the mora morality of clear prose. Clear prose is a godly thing, and unclear prose is a devil's work. And, uh, and yeah, so that's it's yeah, it's true actually. That's what makes a god, right? So uh, okay, so let, let's come back to the bond market. One thing Sam was pointing out to me, and you know, something we couldn't get our our heads around and understanding exactly why. So figured you're the perfect person to ask this. Uh, too, so no pressure here. Um, but what's going on with the Treasury cash balance at the Fed? It's a typically high, right? I mean, typically, it, you know, it runs in the tens of billions of dollars. But um, you know, pre-pandemic, you know, it was it was you know, uh, it got up to about half a trillion at one point. But we've been sitting on, you know, the the balance has been sitting north of one and a half trillion. Is there some implication we should be thinking about in the marketplace? Is there something going on that there's a significant Treasury cash balance at the Fed? Yeah, it, it matters because this money is on ice. It is uh, not circulating and not doing the world's work. Um, I confess to you, I have not made a study of this, but it certainly does matter in the me mechanics of Fed operations. Right, you can print it, but they don't have to come, right? Well, uh, that, is the, that is the less, yes, that's well said. That is, uh, in fact, uh, a very godly turn of phrase that one was. Um, but that is the uh, lesson of uh, what they call pushing on a string, right? You, you, the Fed can... Um, uh, can propose, but it is the uh, the borrowers and the lenders in the everyday economy who dispose. Right, the, the Fed can create all the Fed credit, all the uh, can all the you know, reserve balances it, it chooses to do. But unless those balances are mobilized, uh, they will lie fallow, as they did for much of the uh, post uh, immediate post crisis period. That's when, yeah, that's when. Um, uh, those who waited for inflation, uh, I count myself among that unlucky company or that uh, unobservant company, got that wrong because the uh, the, the money that uh, the Fed created was not uh, was uh, uh, was uh, sitting uh, fallow, and the reserve balances of the banks themselves at the Fed. Yeah. So as as you think about that, um, and I, I I I like that you admit that you were in that camp, and and you'll at least take the mea culpa on it. How are you thinking about the inflationary environment going forward now? Um, we've seen the significant amount of of asset printing or, or monetization, however you want to call it, 
uh, the CARES Act, um, you know, emergency payments to folks. And we don't even have the pandemic behind us, although there was some positive developments last couple of weeks on the vaccine front. But as you look at the amount of debt outstanding and think about um, do you still think that there is this uh, ability to generate some inflation? Is it the ineptitude and the misunderstanding of the central banks? Um, how, how are you re reframing your inflation outlook predicated on where we are today? Well, the, the, uh, the factors that would point to something different would include uh, some of these. Uh, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the 2007-9 affair, uh, the Fed's uh, monetary uh, impulses did not translate into actual growth in the M's, uh, M1, M2, M3. If we, I guess we don't have an M3 anymore, but uh, broad money. Uh, this time around, uh, those impulses have. Uh, uh, last time I looked, uh, the broad money was growing year over year at 20%. Um, the Fed's balance sheet year over year was growing around 80%. So the, so the, the Fed is, is not exactly... Uh, that car which is snuck in, stuck in a snowbank and all you hear is the roaring of rather than seeing forward motion. Uh, it remains to be seen if, if these impulses uh, continue to uh, uh, find expression in the world of actual borrowing and lending and spending. Um, you know, but one of, the, one of the hopeful things about this vaccine is the resumption of, uh, of a more or less normal pace of, of, um, of economic growth. So you have to wonder, um, uh, with all of this uh, money printing, all of the money printing actually has translated into money, won't this perhaps be a somewhat different experience, perhaps more inflation prone than that of the immediate post-crisis era? And uh, you know, there, there's a, 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 a very interesting book, and I'm not sure I can recall either the title or the author. How's that for a helpful citation? Um, but there, there sounds like me trying to recommend something. Yeah, there's a um, uh, there is a uh, book by Charles Goodhart. The two authors, Charles Goodhart, the uh, Bank of England eminence, an academic eminence, uh, and his co-author, uh, proposing that the demographic changes that uh, played into the disinflationary prosperity of the immediate millennial and immediate uh, pre and post millennial period that demographic. Uh, favor is about to change, and uh, that uh, wonderful period of, uh, of favorable demographics is giving rise to something quite different and quite something more prone to inflation. I have not read this book, but it comes highly recommended. So there's, there, I think there's reason to at least wonder about uh, new spell inflation, and you have to wonder also with interest rates as low as they are as a world, you know, as a sort of contrary opinion point of view, is the world really ready for this? I mean, wouldn't it make sense that the next inflation would come up on little cat's feet when there's 17 trade or whatever it is today of bonds yielding less than nothing? So that's, so I'm, I'm I, I guess what I'm saying is I'm, I'm still harboring um, this old flame, tending the flame of the next inflation. Maybe it speaks to my year of birth, 1946, rather than any particular clarity of analysis, but uh, there I am. I want to touch on that 17 trillion of bonds worth next to nothing. No, yielding next to nothing. We'll see if yielding they're worth next, next later. Yielding next yeah. to nothing. So, I mean, the, the Fed has expanded its capabilities, I guess, through purchases and their, their new lending programs that came about through the most recent um, 
uh, around the time of the CARES Act. But one thing it hasn't tried is taking nominal rates negative. What do you think the impact is, or what is the impact on the financial system, global financial system, if the U.S. went to to a negative rate policy? Oh, terrible. I mean, the, the negative rates uh, confound economic theory. They confound common sense. They, 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 they destroy bank lending margins, of course. They, uh, they're bad medicine. Um, you know, uh, the whole idea, or one of the theories of a rate of interest, uh, uh, posited by, among other eminences, Irving Fisher, by acclamation almost, the greatest American economist. Fisher said that uh, interest is, uh, among other things, and principal things, is, is, the, is the, uh, the return you earn for waiting. So uh, impetuous people need money now, and they, they, they pay a price for that. They borrow. And the interest rate they pay is the yield on patience or the cost of impetuosity. That makes sense. So negative yields mean what? You pay the impetuous and penalize the thrifty? I don't know, that doesn't make sense. So I, I, I think it confounds, again, common sense. It flies in the face of uh, substantial interest rate theory. And it plays into the financial dystopia that has been prevalent since uh, the Fed got up on its high horse and started buying everything in sight. I, I say dystopia as somebody who has uh, uh, done more lamenting than, uh, uh, than speculating. I, I dare say for many people who have watched their assets, their positions rise and rise and rise, this is anything but a dystopia. But um, certainly negative rates would be different. And I, 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 I take it as a sign of uh, perhaps an underlying basic horse sense at the Fed that they so far resisting these negative rates, uh, siren calls, uh, may they continue to do so. Yeah, the sirens are always dangerous. They, they lure you in. And um, I, I think at least there is some sense of, uh, of at least pushing back at this stage. And I, I know Mr. Powell's been very, very staunch about that, at least uh, over the course of the summer. So hopefully uh, he keeps that. We stay strong. Yeah, stay strong. Uh, you know, you got at least another until the end of 20, you got at least till 2022 to stay strong. So yeah, um, that, that. you can do that. <laughs> well, we're here to support you on that front, Mr. Bell. <laughs> so so one last thing I, I got to do uh, before we jump into Sam's favorite part of the show is I want to talk to you about gold real quick. And so we've seen gold kind of take it a little bit on the chin as of late, uh, given the vaccine news and the likes. As someone who's been uh, pretty optimistic about the prospects of gold, uh, how are you thinking about your gold positions today? And uh, how are you thinking about that over kind of the medium term? Well, you know, gold is uh, legacy money. It is the, uh, it's one way of expressing your uh, doubts or if not bearishness uh, concerning the institution of modern monetary policy. It uh, prices really the, uh, uh, the, uh, the other side of the coin of the world's faith in the judgment and in the actions of the Jerome Powell's of the world. So I, I mean, I, I, th I think that, uh, I mean, gold is, is uh, it's, uh, it's, an, it's an investment in monetary disorder. Uh, it's not a hedge, it's an investment in it. I think we have monetary disorder. So you're, you're investing in the world's perception of monetary disorder. Is, is the world gonna agree with you that something is fundamentally wrong with money and with the, the managers, the central banking managers of money? That's, that's, the, that's the play. Now, gold is also a, a, a great speculative billiard ball. I mean, people in there, they're cue balls and bound, pounding it around. And, and you can see that when um, 
um, that when uh, modernity strikes it rich with its vaccine or when uh, the, the sun begins to come out in the economy that uh, all the tourists in gold, all the speculators rush to liquidate and you're left with the hardcore uh, monetary buyers and th their numbers are uh, rather modest in the scheme of things. So gold pulls back. But I, to me, this is a almost a multi-generational play. It's nothing about the short or the medium term. What you're banking on is the continued arc of monetary affairs, which is towards ever more intervention, ever greater dislocation from unintended consequences and acts that actually one ought to anticipate consequences from. So I see it as a, as a thing. And in the short term, it can break your heart as easily as any other asset under the sun. More so because it's, you know, it's like, it's no different than, than uh, most treasuries and most uh, euro denominated securities and most Bitcoin in that it yields nothing. It is, it's a, it's kind of a, it's your imagination is a, you make your own adventure. So it's a, it's all of that. All right, that's great. So, uh, Jim, uh, we don't have another 11, 17 and a half podcast to cover more of the details, but that always just gives us a segue to, to invite you back on uh, because it's always uh, interesting to to hear the stories, but also your insights. And so they're invaluable. So we really appreciate that. And I know our listeners do. However, before we let you go, Sam has a favorite part of the show he wants to introduce you to. All right, Jim. Uh, so this is my favorite part of the show is called Sherman Says. And that's where I will offer a series of alternating prompts between you and Mr. Sherman, uh, to which you, I will try to elicit a top of mind response. It's a speed round to what we just did with uh, these prompts. So I'm going to start it off first with austerity to Jeff Sherman. Unthinkable. Mr. Grant, bond vigilantes. Um, RIP. <laughs> <laughs> They're hiding somewhere, but maybe they are. Uh, They're six playing, playing golf in Boca Raton. <laughs> yeah, with the fiscal hawks, right? So <laughs> let's see here. I'm going back to, to Jeff with, uh, let's see here. Timing of a broad vaccination uh, release. Second half, 21. Back to Mr. Grant with curve control. Don't. <laughs> China's expansion. Remarkable. LIBOR transition. Won't happen. Ooh. Next round of fiscal support. Chan 21st. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mispriced risk. Um, it's what we are today. Brexit. Looming. And the final one for Mr. Grant is stagflation. Uh, a figment of the imagination of the people who buy bonds yielding nothing. <laughs> I love it. That's a great way to, to end the show. So, Jim, as always, it's a pleasure. Uh, we learned so much talking to you. Keep up the great work. Uh, we hope to have you on again, and uh, thanks for all you do for all the, the the fiscal authorities out there, keeping them in check, letting them know that people are watching them, um, and and ultimately, you know, just uh, making ourselves better investors. So I appreciate uh, you spending time with us today. Well, you're entirely welcome. What a pleasure. Thank you both. Yes, thank you. And for those of you listening, uh, you can get this uh, podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, 
Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, at the Double Line website, maybe on Jim Grant's website. We'll, we'll see if we can get it up there as well. You can follow us on the Twitter. Our handle is at Sherman Show Pod. I will put up some nice graphics to accompany what we're talking about today. And if you have any uh, feedback, you can email us at Sherman Show at DoubleLine.com. That's Sherman Show at DoubleLine.com. And stay tuned as we wrap up the year with a couple more guests. And we look forward to speaking with you then. Thanks again, Jim. Take care. Okay. The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any double-line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any double-line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2020 Double-Line Capital.